Welcome to the Life Science and Marketing Podcast, where we discuss marketing and career insights and tips with leading experts from across the globe. Let's join our host, Paul Avery, CEO of Biostrata, as he chats with our next Life Science Marketing guest. Welcome to Life Science Marketing. Today, I am joined by my good friend, Chris Thorne. Chris is an all-round life science marketing ninja and currently applies his trade as Director of Marketing at Asimov. Before that, he was doing fantastic work at Fluidic Analytics and Twist Bioscience. Chris is also an ex-scientist, having completed his PhD in cancer cell biology at the University of Liverpool. Welcome, Chris. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Paul. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for the invite to join you. Happy to chat today. Yeah, really looking forward to our, our conversation. Perhaps we can get started by um, just telling us a bit more about yourself and your story and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, as you said, I did my PhD in the University of Liverpool. I've always had a, a passing interest in science. So I, I was doing uh, my bachelor's in Nottingham before that as well. And also during my, my uh, undergraduate studies, I was fortunate to do a couple of industrial placement years. So I, I worked at AstraZeneca, I worked at UCB in Slough, uh, and that really gave me a taste for industrial science or commercial science. Um, and so the PhD was really a, a means to an end to get back into uh, the science uh, industry. So uh, having finished my PhD, uh, I was fortunate to move to a biotech in Cambridge called Horizon Discovery. Um, and this was exciting for a couple of reasons. It was a young startup uh, and so lots of opportunities there. And it was also a startup working in gene editing. And this was before uh, CRISPR had arrived on the scene uh, and during the time that it arrived. So it was a very exciting time to be working in that space. And so, um, you know, working at startups is a fantastic opportunity, not without risk, but a fantastic opportunity to try out different things. Uh, so during my time at Horizon, I worked in uh, R&D, I worked at the bench, I ran a team of scientists, I worked in operations, um, and then I also uh, did some work in, in the commercial team. And the reason I was able to do that uh, was uh, a growing curiosity in how we talk about our science to customers and how we create products that are really useful to people. And so, uh, in my spare time, I started to read books about, uh, you know, uh, building businesses, things like the lean startup and classic texts like that and became interested in, in, uh, you know, digital approaches to reaching audiences. So started practicing building websites and building email lists. And, and that gave me an opportunity, uh, to make the case at, in my day job, um, that I could help on the marketing side, writing copy, uh, sending emails, uh, working on web pages and going out and giving talks. Um, and I did that and um, ultimately was able to move into uh, the marketing team full time at Horizon. Um, and then since then, I've been moving from, you know, uh, marketing roles uh, of slightly different nature in, in various different companies. So product management, uh, marketing managers, and, and latterly director of marketing at, at Asimov. So that's where I am today, uh, and that's the sort of path I've taken. It's a very sort of interesting and diverse set of experiences. What do you think that diversity has given you? Yeah, I, I think um, the, the truth is, is that um, whilst we are marketing to scientists in this industry, 
Um, but at the same time, the, uh, the challenges and approaches um, are, are broadly similar, which is to say that um, you need to find the right people. Uh, you need to have a, a product that solves an actual problem uh, for them. Um, and you need to communicate with them in such a way that they clearly understand the value of what you're offering and it feels authentic, that communication mm. to, to them. So actually, you know, I, I mentioned that I was, um, you know, sort of working in my spare time to develop these skills. I actually briefly started a, a, a company with a friend trying to develop um, software tools for, for makeup artists. Uh, and as you can imagine, uh, well, Believe it or not, uh, I'm not the world's leading expert in, in makeup artistry. Um, so in that sense, I had to wrap my head around what, what were the problems we were trying to solve there. But going through that uh, sort of exercise of, of interviewing potential customers and um, you know, trying to identify their pain points and, and, and understand what's going to resonate with them is the exact same exercise that I would go through nowadays um, you know, trying to work out uh, what cell line development scientists uh, might need from a product from Asimov, for example. So I think um, there's definitely um, skills that you can build that would apply across all industries, irrespective of whether you're in marketing. The one thing I would say, though, is that in science, uh, or scientists are a particularly cynical and skeptical bunch. Uh, you know, they want to see the data. They want to see supporting evidence for anything you say. And that's because we're trained to think that way uh, during our, our PhDs, for example. So I think um, that's something to keep in mind that's uh, almost unique to the, the scientific industry. Absolutely. I love that. I love that diversity of, of that experience. We hadn't talked about that beforehand, right? And I, I think that's really interesting. It makes me realize when I was uh, in sixth form and university, I worked in bars and I worked on the checkouts at a supermarket. And it's funny. The things that you do that teach you skills that you later rely on, but you don't really realize how you pick those skills up, right? In my case, we run an agency, we're a service business. The customer service yeah. aspect probably came from working behind a bar and working in, in a checkout. So all these little things, these little meanders on the road of life teach you little skills that you can then lean on in your future roles. Exactly. And, and who knows as well what, what roles you're going to have in the future. So you know, acknowledging it's a bit of a buzzword in, in university, isn't it? When they talk about transferable skills, but it's, it's absolutely true that you do develop skills that, uh, will, will ideally be, um, useful across a range of different, um, uh, disciplines. Absolutely. What do you, um, where is every role do you love the most? Oh, good question. Well, um, I think, one of the reasons that I was attracted to marketing uh, in the first place, well, a couple of the reasons actually, is first of all, I, I, I think um, science is, is really very interesting, uh, but I often think that the stories aren't told very well. So, you know, we scientists like to hide behind the data. And, um, and I think what I love to see is, is difficult concepts uh, communicated elegantly. Um, so that's one thing that I really like to focus on in my job. Um, the truth as well is there is an, uh, a scientific aspect to marketing too. So the data uh, can often drive uh, the activities that you do or the decisions that you make. And that's really interesting, uh, watching um, how your customers engage with your, your different marketing campaigns, 
and choosing which levers to pull to try to uh, improve your, your marketing funnel, for example. And then finally, on a personal level, uh, the thing that I really enjoy is building um, robust and scalable sort of systems and teams uh, within this industry such that you can have a, a process or a marketing function that if I was to step away, would continue to function and, and tick along um, and, you know, is a well-oiled machine. And, and that's very satisfying to me as well to see all the pieces kind of click together whereby you have um, communication with potential customers, leads coming in, the sales are getting, um, you know, their leads and that's turning into revenue and, and everyone understands how everything works. So, yeah, those are the, the things that I, re I really love about the job. What have you... There's loads of interesting and cool bits in there. What have you, what do you feel is the best lessons that you've learned on the way leaning into those aspects and, and others? Well, I, I mean, we've talked a little bit about, um, the, the sort of general, um, sort of thrust of marketing already, you know, and, and making sure that you have a, uh, a clear and concise message that resonates with your customers and that feels authentic. So I think, uh, you know, I won't go into that again, but, but what I do want to touch on, I think from my point of view is, is how important, um, the, the, the team and the relationships, uh, within the company have been in, in to, uh, essentially achieve success. So I think, um, you know, from my point of view, uh, the success that we achieve is, is obviously a measure of the results that you generate, but it's also contingent on the relationships that you have. Uh, and what I mean by that is not just, you know, your immediate team, but then your extended network as well. So have you got buy-in from, from your stakeholders? Have you got a good pool of, of resources, perhaps, you know, agencies such as yourself, uh, Paul and, uh, you know, people that you trust and, uh, you know, often can you support your, your immediate network by connecting them with, with other people as well? So I think building and, and maintaining relationships has been absolutely crucial. Uh, to be successful in, in this industry, but also in marketing in particular. And so what I'd recommend to, to anyone, and, and I, I guess this isn't necessarily specific to marketing is to be proactive, uh, about building and maintaining uh, a network of relationships, uh, you know, for your professional career. And so, um, building relationships is hard, you know, that, that takes time and effort. But actually maintaining them is, is relatively straightforward. You know, it just requires a little bit of thought uh, and effort. And actually putting in that little bit of time can just pay, uh, re pay can just, you know, be so rewarding and, and, and really pay off in the future. So, you know, I, I try to be, uh, you know, sort of relatively proactive about this and, and, you know, actually connect with people once or twice a year just to stay in touch, you know. I think actually, um, Christmas is a really good opportunity for this. You know, I, I don't send Christmas cards, but I like to send uh, a little e a message to people just over Christmas and just check in. And that's a real pleasure for me, not just because I like staying in touch with people, but actually in doing it that way, whether it's through LinkedIn or email or text message, you actually get some messages back and you can start to, to kind of see what's going on in people's life. And I think actually, you know, Paul, that's, that's one of the ways that you and I have stayed in touch over the years is sort of through the occasional message on LinkedIn and just, just connection. 
but you know, really whatever works for, for the individual, whether it's like a, a three month or six month cadence, if you want to get, you know, sort of marketing technical about it or, or just having a plan, uh, to connect with people will pay dividends in the future as you, as you grow in your career. And that could be reaching out to someone because you want a referral for a, um, a particular skill set. It could be because you're looking for a job and need a referee. Um, it could be that you're hiring yourself. Uh, it may be that you're actually like trying to connect with someone in a company and you, you could do with a, 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 you know, a door opening for you. All of these things are important, but what you don't want is for the first time that you reach out to someone to be that request. So just having that occasional check-in and, and, you know, finding out what people are up to, uh, leaves that door open uh, and I think, um, becomes a real professional asset. So mm-hmm. a bit of a long-winded answer to your question about what I found important, but, but yeah, I, I'd say building and maintaining relationships is, is a key, uh, a key skill, uh, and very important in the, in a marketing career. Yeah. What I love about that is the practical essence that you brought to that, right? I think you can, you can read books and you can hear people talk about the importance of networking and building relationships, right? But you've just given us a series of practical mechanisms to actually achieve that, especially for people yeah. who are not natural networkers, right? Some people love going out to events and wandering around and speaking to everyone, but other people are much more sort of nervous about it. And you described some almost systemization that you can bring to your approach so that if it's not natural to you, at least you've got a framework you can fall back on. Yeah. Well, I think you mentioned networking events, for example. So actually, I think one of the, the first times you and I met was in fact at a Biostrata networking event in Cambridge. And this was probably eight years ago now. And uh, I believe you were serving pizza and beer. Um, and I can actually, off the top of my head, recall a couple of people I met, I met that evening. Um, and I know that they're still in my, my LinkedIn connections. And yeah, so what I did at the end of that evening was I went home, added them to my LinkedIn. And just wrote them a short message saying, it was great to meet you tonight. We'd love to stay in touch, you know, and, um, you know, because you've literally just invested the time there in getting to know people. And that shouldn't be the, you shouldn't draw a line under it there. It, It is worth doing that after a conference, you know, a networking event or, a or a, um, you know, even a meeting, uh, with a potential new customer, just deepening that relationship a little bit and, and continuing to work at that um, will just make things easier for you should you ever need to uh, call on that relationship again in the future. Okay, you, you bang on that little bit of extra time, thought and effort makes will make you stand out because in most people's busy lives, that's the bit yeah. they don't do, right? Yeah. And I, I think the other mistake that people perhaps make at some of these events as well as feeling like they've got to meet everyone in the room, right? So, um, which neither is useful and nor particularly enjoyable <laughs> for the people being met. Uh, because if all you're trying to do is get your business card into a hundred people's hands, uh, then they're going to know straight away that you're, you're literally looking for a sort of transactional interaction. Whereas if you can go to any of these events or, or, conferences, for example, and, and just make one or two meaningful con- connections, uh, you know, establish a shared interest about, you know, the particular area of science you're working on or, you know, potential future business relationships, or even just, you know, something 
that you have in common, then I think that's that's the kind of um, robust uh, network that network building that can can really help. Good advice. Um, right, let's switch gears a little bit and talk science, right, for a bit. You're a you're a recovering scientist like me, <laughs> and I would love to know what because you've worked in so many cool companies as well. But out of that, what's been like the most interesting sort of product or scientific area that you've worked on for you? Yeah, you, you're right, Paul. I, I've, I've been really lucky, actually. I, I have worked, like I said, I worked in Horizon Discovery when gene editing was taking off. Um, and I could still talk about CRISPR all day. Um, but I think on a, on a personal level, um, I've also been fortunate to work in a couple of companies where we're selling products into the field of epigenetics. Um, which I just think is, is a fascinating area of science and, and one that's still, you know, not, uh, it's still very young and, and there's still plenty to be understood about this field. You know, the fact that when the genome was sequenced, you know, we, we thought that 97% of it was junk. And now we know that through these mechanisms of, of epigenetic modifications and, and the arrangement of, of, uh, chromosomes in, in three dimensions. We know that actually a lot of, a lot of this junk DNA is in fact regulatory. It's controlling how genes are expressed. I mean, just things like the fact that bees can be clonally identical, but depending on their epigenetic marks will actually be a worker bee or a queen bee, or that, um, your environmental exposure can be read on your, your epigenetic marks as you proceed through life. So, you know, you could sequence someone's epigenetic marks and know whether they've been a smoker at any stage during their life. I just think is, is really cool, but also the potential for, um, you know, future, uh, approaches for early detection and, and diagnosis of, of disease using epigenetics and, you know, liquid biopsy gets thrown around as a buzzword in our industry a lot, but the, you know, this is one of the potential for, for epigenetic analysis is, is the approach of, of, of sequencing, um, circulating DNA, um, in the, in the, in the blood as well. So that's really exciting to see how this sort of relatively nascent field might, um, inject itself into what we understand about genomics, but also what we understand about disease. And I'm, I'm really interested to see how that evolves in the coming years, but yeah, I think so. I think on a personal level, I, 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 I find epigenetics fascinating, but I also think on a, just on a kind of my observation of, of how I tend to, um, get excited about things it often tends to be the thing I'm, I'm working on at the time. Right. So, you know, I, I, I as you, you say, I've, I've worked on a few different things right now. I, I'm really excited to be working in Asimov where we're developing not just software to help scientists do effectively computer-aided design of biology. But in parallel with that, we're building biolog biological products and parts that kind of interface with that software that in effect will allow um, scientists working in biology in much the same way as engineers working with, you know, building um, buildings or, or, uh, or products to do robust and reproducible biological engineering. So they can actually predictably understand how something's going to behave in a biological system and then produce it. And so in our case, you know, in, in Asimov, we, we use this, uh, in the fields of, of biologic production and, and, um, and gene therapy, 
Um, and we're, we're excited about it because it's already creating good outcomes for our, our customers who are getting, you know, better results with their, with their biologic production. But I think the potential future of that, whereby we, every experiment we do sort of pipes, um, data and, uh, back into our system such that we can improve and then, you know, understand even better just gets me really excited about the potential for this this product of, as it evolves as well. Yeah, that's really cool. The, I remember reading about, didn't get to take part in, but reading about the iGEM um, competitions that started maybe 10, 15 years ago, challenging teams to build reproducible biological circuits, as it were, like engineers were to, to deliver reliable outputs, um, measurable yeah. outputs. I always remember thinking, and the great dream was to get the robustness that you get with electrical engineering, let's say, but with biological yeah. systems, which is hard because they're so noisy, but it's exciting to me to hear that we're making progress on that journey. Absolutely. And I don't know if this was the case when, when back when you were in the lab, Paul, but often if something didn't work, the excuse was, well, biology, right? Or you'd, and you'd kind of just wave your hands and go, well, it's not particularly reducible, but that's biology. So that's the, the problem that we're really looking to solve is, is, um, is that at some point, if you can create enough understanding of what biology is actually doing in these incredibly complex systems, then with that, it should be possible to, um, make predictions about how something is going to behave if you put it into those systems. And that has potential, not just for engineering new things, but also if we think about how we're going to use biology to manufacture things in the future for scaling as well. So, you know, for example, we were, uh, very fortunate over the pandemic to very rapidly have these biological vaccines, um, in the forms of, of, uh, the mRNA vaccines, for example. But that also created an extreme challenge in manufacturing because suddenly they needed to be able to produce a biological thing in huge quantities. So if we can predict how to do that in such a way that we can go from small scale, you know, single or multi-well plates or, or small reactors to 20,000 liter bioreactors and understand what's going to happen if we do that then that's going to be extremely valuable to us uh, as the human race as we, as we rely more on these, these biological products. Yeah, I don't know if this is an area you've done much work in, but I really love the concept of sort of RNA-based vaccines, right? Not just for diseases, but this concept of vaccinating yourself against your cancer or vaccinating yourself against mm. Alzheimer's. Is, have you done any work in that area and, and done any sort of understanding in there? So I think uh, in the future, uh, we will be looking at um, mRNA or RNA as a, as a modality that we will look to support for production. But I, you know, more, more generally, I, th I think um, the work being done by the BioNTechs and the Modernas of the world and, and the potential for RNA as a modality to treat diseases is absolutely fa fascinating, right? Because once you've got that RNA in there, you can, in theory, you know, safely express anything as a potential, you know, antigen to, to raise immunity. So yes, I, I think it's, 
I think we've only scratched the surface of what's possible with with RNA, and I, I think, you know, it, it was obviously a a very unfortunate uh, accelerator, but the the pandemic has has brought to light the the high potential of, of this this approach, and it's extremely exciting to see what what we might produce in the coming decade. No, I agree. Um, let's shift gears slightly. Then we've co- covered life, we've covered science. Let's talk a bit about marketing what do you feel are some of the biggest challenges that life science marketers are currently facing yeah i think um challenges that marketers face in life sciences are broadly speaking the same challenges that marketers face across the board which is to say that um the attention span of the average individual the you know the the average scientist nowadays has just shrunk uh, and, and the reason for that is that we're just so saturated uh, by exposure to, you know, or things trying to capture our attention in any one moment. So I'm sure, Paul, you receive hundreds of emails every day of people trying to, you know, pitch your products or services or or get in your inbox or, or get some time with you as a meeting. Um, and it's also true on social media um, and everywhere we go. We're just so so we're, we're trained ourselves to sort of uh, essentially screen out all of this noise. And then combine that with the fact that even if you do get people's attention, their attention span itself has shrunk. So, you know, we don't want to watch long form videos anymore. We want, you know, TikTok, or uh, we don't want to read long form blogs anymore. We just want snippets or tweets or Xs. Um, And so I think the truth is, is that that creates a challenge for marketers, but it also forces us you know, probably to be better marketers because we need to think more clearly about who is our audience, uh, and we can't just you know spray and pra- pray with uh, email blasts anymore. We've got to really try to be targeted about how we put our message in front of people, and then we've really got to put that a message in front of them that is actually going to connect with them and is authentic. At the end of the day, people, while they buy from companies, they tend to connect with people and so communicating on an in an authentic manner in such a way that they feel like they have a connection with you is is important um so i think you know learning to be a better marketer finding your audience and and getting in front of them at the right time and then of course i've never worked in an organization where the marketing budget um wasn't you know stretched and resource uh wasn't scarce so i think also being um kind of clever about where you're spending your time and your money uh, is part of that process as well. So again, this comes back to doing the work up front, understanding who your audience is and where they are, and then trying to put the systems in place that you can you can track what's working and what isn't and, and react to that accordingly. Um, and then the final thing as well, and I think this is particularly challenging, um, in order to stand out in a in a very noisy marketplace sometimes you've got to be really brave um, and do things that make you really uncomfortable and that's not always that's certainly not easy not least because the very nature of what we do in marketing means that we are extremely exposed to the eyeballs not just from our customers but from everyone who works with us in our company and so Doing things that um, kind of make you stand out and um, 
you know, are different from all the other companies out there um, is, is going to get you noticed, but is going to feel quite uncomfortable as well. So um, getting buy-in from your, your leadership and, and their support to do that is important. Um, and, and then, you know, taking those brave steps is, is the way to, to be noticed. What do you think being brave looks like practically? Could, even if it's a hypothetical example, what do you, what do you think that, how does that Gosh. translate to the real world? Yeah, I think, um, it, <laughs> it, it, it really can vary. I, I think I've mentioned this before. I, I think you've got to do it in such a way that it's, it's, it's authentic with your brand, right? So you, you can't be, um, working in a conservative diagnostic space, for example, and then decide that you're going to have someone show up at your booth wearing a, a, a hot dog costume for the day uh, to, to gather leads. It, it's not going to resonate. Um, but there are things. So I think if I remember, um, you, you know, one idea we had at, at, at Twist, for example, was that a lot of the, the antibodies that we sort of work on are based on, um, are based on a, a um, a structure from, from llamas. And so we do a lot of work with, with sort of llama based antibodies. So the one idea we had was to, to, to literally bring some llamas to the booth, uh, at one of the conferences. And yeah, it's a total nightmare doing things like that, but it, it's extremely, <laughs> it's extremely eye-catching, you know, so that's the kind of, so that, you know, you can, you can do that kind of guerrilla marketing, um, extremely, uh, noticeable stuff at conferences, which are always a good place to catch eyes. Um, I think, um, as well, trying to find, um, brave ways to, to get your campaign message out there that isn't just communicating benefits as well. So I uh, not benefits isn't just communicating features, I should say. So, you know, yes, we're scientists. We are interested in the data. And that, that there's a time and a place for telling people what they're going to get in, in practical terms from using your, your product. But, but coming at, you know, scientists are still human beings. And so coming at them on an emotional level and communicating how it's going to improve their work, whether that's reducing the risk of them failing, you know, uh, a, a, a drug development campaign, for example, which is, is a terrifying prospect or, or getting them home, uh, you know, one of my favorite campaigns of, of, of the last decade, I think was, was I think from Invitrogen and it was, uh, it was one of their, their stem cell media campaigns. And the, the value prop was not, you know, this is going to keep your cell cells alive, but it was along the lines of we'll give you your weekends because essentially it allowed scientists to, you know, walk away from, from stem cells, which typically need, um, passaging every day. Um, and, and leave them for extended periods of time in that media. And, and I thought that was a really nice customer insight that they, they translated into a marketing campaign. That is a fantastic example, right? Of really boiling down the message to try and emotionally resonate with people. We say a lot of Vistra, scientists are humans too. So I think they, the things you talked about yeah. here are absolutely spot on, right? They're, they can be cynical. They're very data driven and all those things are true, but they also have emotions and you can yeah. speak to those emotions, right? Um, so I, I think that's really, really interesting. There's a um, marketing consultant, I can't remember his name, but I'm going to put it in the show notes when I dig it out. He talks about edge crafting. And when I think about bravery 
in the life sciences, I think it's hard sometimes to be brave with your messaging like, like that, right? Mm. And, and this concept of edge crafting is in the middle of the circle is all of the safe messaging that lots of companies use because they don't want to stick their necks out, right? Which is safe, but it's not very differentiated and it doesn't really mm. make a splash and it won't really get noticed. And what you want to do is find that space on the edge that's provocative and interesting enough to get some attention, but not so provocative as to significantly risk damaging your brand. And I think looking for that edge for most companies is requires bravery, right? As you said, yeah. because you, you're going to have to stick your neck out a bit and you might not know if you've stuck yeah. out too far at times. So I'd, I'd love to see more of that in the life sciences. Yeah. And I think. One of the challenges as well, and I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this as well as, as someone who's got to make that pitch is sort of, um, is sort of holding the line a little bit when you, you feel like you've got a good idea. Um, and I think, dare I say it, what, one of the advantages of coming to an agency such as Biostrata, I'm going to give you a little mini pitch here, but is that it gives you backup to say, well, I've gone out, I found experts. And I, this isn't just me saying this, we should give this a try because, you know, um, these guys are, are, are expensive and they, they, <laughs> and they say, you know, it would be a good idea. And, and it's not just because it, 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 I don't know if you are expensive anymore, but, um, but I think the point is, is that having, um, having the data, you know, your stakeholders will often want data as well. So I think having the data to back you up, which in this case could be support from an external agency is, is really a good idea. And then the other thing, the other case to make is, is the counterfactual, which is, well, this is the business risk if we, if we continue with the status quo, right? Which is we may, you know, bubble along here, but if we need a, a hockey stick at this time, then the risk of us just doing, um, you know, work that is average is, is also a risk as well. I think that's a great way to position it. And the nuances of that for different businesses based on their context is going to vary, right? If you're a challenger brand, then you're going to, and you're going up against the really big established players, you know, multi-billion dollar companies, you can't do kind of what they do in a less well-funded way because you're just not going to mm. win right you really got to do something interesting but often if you're the large company with a large market share if you rest on your laurels and the challenger brands are taking that type of attitude well they're going to start displacing you especially if the tactics messages channels they're using appeal to say younger scientists it doesn't take yep. very long for phds to become postdocs getting their own funding and buying their own stuff. And it doesn't take long often for those postdocs to start to become PIs. So you can yep. see turnover, I think, in the decision-making in who's got the money and who's spending it. Surprisingly quickly, especially in academia, with people moving around a lot and having their own, their own funding. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely a, an area to, to keep um, an eye on, I think, if you're a life science marketer. I also want to go back to something else you said, which I think is fascinating. I think in all companies, budget is limiting because in many ways, yeah. whatever the biggest budget you can get is usually just allows you to have bigger impact, right? But in my experience, yeah. life science company marketing budgets are somewhere between a sort of underfunded or chronically underfunded. And I would yeah. love to know what your experience or your take is on 
the importance of marketing in life science companies and how that translates into the investment and resource that goes into it. Yeah, I think, um, so maybe to begin with, maybe we should have done this at the beginning, but I think it depends on how you define the function of marketing within a life sciences company, right? So, um, for, and that, that's important for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, it, it's important for anyone you hire that you, you have alignment upon the, the function of that role. Uh, but also it, it determines the, the budget and, and the responsibilities of that function as well. So, for example, marketing can cover everything from the, the strategics of product development and, and defining the product and product management piece, uh, the go-to-market strategy, um, and the kind of tactical um, uh, marketing activities that, that a company, you know, trying to drive uh, awareness and, and leads. And then it can also include um, the kind of sales support activities. So, you know, developing sales collaterals and and um, you know, launching events that the sales team can show up to, and 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 you know, and the mix of those sort of three things uh, can can vary from from company to company. If you have a very sales driven organization, for example, then marketing can often be quite a sales support function. Whereas if if you have um, products that are maybe a little lower value, and and it wouldn't make sense to have you know boots on the ground selling them. Then it can be my, quite marketing-driven, where you're, you're trying to drive uh, people into an e-commerce platform. So, in terms of of how, I think that can affect your your budget and also the size of your team as well. Um, and you know, I, I think in terms of how I tend to budget, it tends to be coming at it from two directions. So, um, you know, what are the activities that we'd ideally like to do, and how much is it going to cost? Um, but also, what's the revenue that we need to generate? Uh, this year and how many opportunities and leads uh, and what have you do we need to do and how what's the cost of a lead and, and how much do we think we need to spend to get those so I, i'm not sure i i answered your your question particularly well there paul but but in essence it, it it is very company dependent but i i think to your point about it being constrained or extremely constrained i, I think that's just the the nature of the the industry um especially at the moment you know uh there's not as much money uh, in the industry as there was, so people are, are tightening their purses a little bit. But again, it, it forces us to be more clever uh, about how we spend things. And I, I think as well, you know, sometimes you have to invest, um, invest up front to be effective in the future. So I mentioned quite early on that one of my favorite things is about building systems uh, that help the marketing team function. I, I think that will become more important as we see the growing development of sort of AI augmented tools. I mean, we've seen chat GPT and, and, and I'm sure many of us are aware of how um, potentially game-changing that is in our industry, but then the integration of that tool into things like, you know, uh, MailChimp or, or other such tools or, you, you know, even, even uh, in my case, using uh, ChatGPT to sort of look at lists of leads and try to understand uh, are these you know potentially um, suitable leads for our for our BD team it is one such application. So I think what would become a skill set for a a marketing manager in the future is trying to determine what are the tools I need to pay for and spend on now that will give me maximum leverage 
as a small team uh, to deliver my my marketing targets rather than I need a big budget to buy this amount of ad inventory and do this number of conferences. It will be it will be more sort of uh, small small teams with with probably larger software budgets as well. I think you're right. I think I think that's always a tension, and I think the tension pulling towards using software to augment teams and improve their productivity, efficiency, creativity. I think we're going to see a yeah. lot of that. I think it'd be interesting to see. Yeah, I think your answer is also really relevant and fascinating, honestly, Chris, because I think what you did is you armed people listening to this with a few tools for how to make an argument for a realistic budget to achieve a realistic set of goals, right? Mm. And if, if, if you're working back from revenue and then up your, your sales funnel, looking at your conversion rates to figure out how much you can afford to spend on a, a lead, for example, that's a great way to plan a, try and plan a realistic budget where you can say, what do we expect if we spend $100,000 on marketing, what type of ROI would we expect? Assuming we can track that through to, to customer acquisition and revenue, that's a great model yeah. for making a compelling case for what the budget should be. And it's also a great model for saying, we're not willing to spend that much because we're not, because we think we'll need to spend that, but our ROI is not going to be there. And then you've got to be a bit more gorilla, like you said, right? You've got to think of yeah. what, what, it's the 20% that's going to get you the 80% of the impact. And you've got to be a bit smarter and a bit clever and a bit more creative. Exactly. Exactly. It's, um, it's tough as well. I mean, measuring ROI is, is the holy grail in, 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 if it was a closed loop system. Uh, but, but the reality is that um, it isn't. You know, we, we meet people at conferences, sales team, meet people who, who were, you know, touched by us seven times, but, but we never had any um, attribution of that in our systems, for example. So, you, you know, you, you do your best to try and, um, measure, uh, but at the same time, um, acknowledging that it isn't, it isn't a perfect system, unfortunately. I, I think it's so important that you say that because I think there's a tendency for us to get lulled into a full sense of security that all the dis like digital wizardry that we have access to these days makes attribution a technical problem. That was yeah. that's either solved or close to being solved in lots of areas. And there's just too many things that can influence a person that we'll never be able to measure. I don't believe we'll ever be able to measure all of it. And so by definition, there'll always be a bit of black box that goes into which of our marketing and sales approaches are having the biggest impact. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, what, one of my favorite tools uh, that I've worked with is, is HubSpot, for example, which is a great bit of marketing automation kit. But um, not so great for in-person, you know, activities, for example, wonderful for everything digital online. Uh, but you know, it's, um, it's just, and, and I don't think that's necessarily a gap, uh, or, or a fading of HubSpot. It's just that as soon as you go into the real world with people, it gets more messy, right? You can't, you can't track what, what they did at a conference, you know, you're not following them around. So, so yes, it, it gets way more messy. Um, and I, I, I honestly, on a personal level, I kind of hope that no one solves that problem because I'm not sure I want to be tracked to that degree. <laughs> uh, um, exactly. There's a soft, there's a, there's a new technology that's coming out. I can't remember the name of it, but in essence, they're trying to replace the phone with the, in essence, like a clip on computer that will, yeah. um, project onto your hand for certain aspects, but mostly you talk to it and it's got a camera in it. So in theory. 
you could yeah. be recording all of the interactions that people like sales reps are having with with every single prospect that they ever meet, and you could crunch all that data to try and figure out, oh, yeah. well, when the conversation goes this way, they're 82% more likely to become a customer. But crumbs, that would be a scary world to live in. Yeah, I know. It, it's it's sort of going that way. And, and you can see even there's some fantastic tools for, for sales teams to use now for sort of helping manage their sales funnel, things like uh, Sales Loft, where you can set up cadences and then you can all your calls that you make can be recorded for sales training. And I guess the next step on from that is, is the AI piece where, you know, the tool will go through all the calls that have been made and look for the indicators of, of what was a successful sale. And that will help with your sales training. Um, but I think, you know, you asked me earlier, what are the challenges for, for marketers? My, my understanding of, of GDPR is, is broadly speaking to, help the the individual consumer so the people we're trying to reach and, and protect them <laughs> from from overreach and on the part of 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 those kind of tools and marketers like ourselves um and, and give them ownership of their own data so that you can opt in to be tracked if you wish but you can also take ownership of your data and opt out as well and i think um as i said on on a professional level obviously I, i'd love to be able to close the loop of my system and understand where my money's going and, and what what's converting but on a personal level and on a data privacy level, I think, um, you know, it's important that uh, I retain control of my data as well. I'm with you on that one. Um, right. Just to close us out then, last question. What would be your single best marketing tip that you'd pass on to other life science marketers? Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, I think, um, I think I've given it already, uh, which is to say that, um, you know, Marketing's evolving rapidly. The, the skills that I developed writing blogs and emails and, and uh, kind of lead magnets um, have largely, you know, uh, changed almost completely uh, since GDPR. Um, and with the arrival of AI, everything's changing as well. Um, so just to go back to my earlier point, the one thing that hasn't changed has been uh, the importance of, of the relationships that I've built and, and maintaining those relationships. So I guess the one bit of advice I would give to people is, you know, stay sharp on marketing, but also, you know, keep, uh, keep in touch with people and, uh, you know, build and maintain those relationships in this career. It also is what makes it kind of fun as well, for me as well, is, is enjoying uh, working with friends and, and people that I enjoy working with. I completely agree. My favorite thing about us launching this podcast is, in a weird way, my job gets to be to have awesome conversations with interesting <laughs> people who know lots of stuff that I don't. Yeah. If, that, if that's a job, then wow, I'm pretty excited about that. But um, no, you get paid to do this. <laughs> it's not. It's not bad, huh? I, I'm. I'm a fan. So um, I'm sure that when people um, listen to this, they may have questions for you. They may want to get in touch. What's the best way for them to reach you, Chris, if they're interested to? Well, I've, I've just told you about building and maintaining a network on LinkedIn. So I would, I would encourage uh, people to reach out to me through LinkedIn. Um, and in the interests of uh, cutting through the noise and getting my attention, uh, please do communicate while you're reaching out. And uh, I'd be happy to, to chat with you there. Amazing stuff. Thanks again for your time, Chris. Really appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you soon. My pleasure, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Life Science and Marketing Podcast. For your regular dose of cutting-edge life science marketing insights, 
Don't forget to subscribe. Join us again in two weeks for another engaging expert discussion. Thank you.